is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Listeners, today's bonus episode is uh, an excerpt of my panel at NAFSA 2018 in St. Petersburg, Florida from earlier this month. Keep an eye out in the next couple of weeks for our Francis Eleanor Trollope episode. We didn't forget, just a number of circumstances made it necessary to push it back by a couple of weeks. So you should expect that one in mid-November and then our regularly scheduled fiction episode at the end of November. Now, if you're a long-time listener, you'll remember that in November last year, I had a bonus episode from NAVSA 2017 in which Miranda Butler and a number of other guest hosts chatted about their favorite lesser-known Victorian writers and why you should read them. Um, Stemming from that recording, Miranda got in touch with me earlier this year about potentially putting together a panel for NAVSA, and I don't know if I explained in last year's episode, but NAVSA stands for the North American Victorian Studies Association, um, and it's the big annual conference for Victorianists. Of course, I was delighted by the prospect of putting things together, um, and we managed to propose a very cohesive and, I think, fascinating panel about sound and the body And you're going to get to hear excerpts of that today. But before I do, I just want to introduce the people whose voices you'll be hearing. So Miranda Butler, who was on the podcast last year, is a PhD candidate in English at the University of California, Riverside, where she works in the history of science and critical disability studies. Her dissertation, tentatively titled Scientifically Sound, examines phonetic shorthand, Morse code, and Braille as methods of knowledge production in the 19th century. She is also the current American graduate student representative for NAVSA. Her work has appeared in science fiction film and television and science fiction studies. Shannon Drocker is a PhD candidate in English at Boston University. Her dissertation, titled Sounding Bodies, Music and Physiology in Victorian Fiction, explores how 19th century scientific understandings of music's effects on the body fundamentally transformed how the Victorians thought and wrote about corporeal life. Her work has appeared in Victorian Periodicals Review, 19th Century Gender Studies, and Branch. Kate Nesbitt is an English PhD candidate at the University of Iowa, specializing in 19th century British literature. Her dissertation, Listening to Reading Aloud, Literacy and the Novel, has earned a Huntington short-term award, as well as three University of Iowa fellowships. Her work has appeared in Victorian Poetry, European Romantic Review, and Studies in the Novel. And you already know who I am, or you should if you've been listening for long. So I'm not going to include my bio here, but if you want to check out my academic bio, you can do so at CourtneyAFloyd.com. 
You'll also hear a bit from Jay Clayton, who moderated our panel. He is a professor in the Department of English at Vanderbilt and the director for the Curb Center for Art, Enterprise, and Public Policy at Vanderbilt. Oh yeah, please stick around to the end of the episode to hear two 19th century songs that very few people have heard since they were originally published in the Weekly Telegraph in 1894. I transcribed them and transformed them into MIDI format, so it's a computer recording, but still gives you a sense of the kind of music that was published in 19th century newspapers. Okay, without further ado. Uh, greetings, everyone. Uh, I think we should go ahead and get started. Uh, I'm Jay Clayton, and I'm from Vanderbilt University moderating this panel. Uh, it, this is an unusually coherent panel put together with great brilliance, not by me, uh, to uh, focusing on sound, as all of you in the audience clearly already know. But uh, I've been asked to introduce our speakers one at a time before their talks rather than all at once. I think that's a better system anyway. Our first speaker is Kate Nesbitt. Uh, she's a PhD candidate at the University of Iowa, and she's been working on recitation and elocution and oral reading, so this should be a really spectacular presentation, just raising the stakes and the pressure on you. Uh, but, but the pressure goes toward you as well, because she's also particularly interested in the role of the listener in active meaning making. Please take her away. Oh, thank you. This is part of a larger project. My dissertation is on listening to reading aloud. So, um, and this particular piece is taken from a chapter in progress on listening to the newspaper. So you can keep that in mind as we, as we go forward. I'm really welcome feedback. In 1907, Thomas Hardy wrote a letter to Edward Garnett in praise of his recent play, The Breaking Point. Hardy particularly appreciated the play's preface, a polemical letter addressed to the censor on restrictions placed on English drama. The preface goes, literature has been freed from the censor, fine art has been freed, the drama must be freed. Despite his praise, Hardy does remark that English literature is, quote, not so disencumbered of the censor as the preface assumes. And this is Hardy writing, buckle up, it's a long quote. The editor is the censor here. Last week, a poem of mine, which I thought almost too obtrusive in its moral, was declined by one of our chief editors on the sole ground that his periodical was, quote, read in families. Hardy continues, yet the subject of the poem, which gave no details, is read by all families in newspaper reports with full details continually. And a ballad of mine called Trampleman's Tragedy, which appeared in a foreign review, has been declined by English editors for the very same reason. The subject of that ballad, too, would be read aloud in any family circle with modern details in a newspaper. The newspaper, Hardy implies, is the form truly disencumbered by, of the censor. The two poems Hardy cites were presumably rejected because they contained out-of-wedlock pregnancies, material ostensibly unsuitable for reading aloud in families. But, Hardy points out, newspapers are read aloud in families and can still cover reports on these topics in detail. Why must the author sanitize his work for the family circle when the newspaper does not? By the time Hardy wrote this letter to Garnet in 1907, Hardy had long been critical of the influence household reading held on the literary marketplace, and especially on the English novel. 
In his 1890 essay, Candor in English Fiction, Hardy deemed household reading responsible for England's, quote, literature of quackery. He writes, adults who, who may desire true views for their own reading still insist upon false views for the reading of their young people. In this essay, too, Hardy turns to the newspaper as his rhetorical counterpoint. Sincere and comprehensive accounts of men, women, and their ruling passions, he writes, while outlawed from imaginative works, are extensively welcomed in the form of newspaper reports. Now, Hardy can only really make this point because in the preceding decades, England had witnessed a kind of sea change in news circulation, reception, and information transmission more generally, a shift in which the newspaper seemed the most prominent symptom and symbol. The newspaper tax repeals and the subsequent rise of the penny paper, increased competition between publishers and the resulting push for faster, more efficient machinery, the popularization of telegraphy and the expansion of international telegraphic networks, all contributed to a cheaper, faster, and more globalized press. But more important for Hardy's case for candid fiction, these changes helped facilitate what press historian Lucy Brown has called a buy-your-own mentality. Pub reading and collective purchase dwindled as Britons outside of London and across class lines could buy their own papers regularly. People read the news at the railway station on their morning commute, at the club, and most crucially here at home. Papers appeared with breakfast, at tea, by the hearth, and always within an ear's reach of impressionable young men and women. The newspaper's now inevitable, if unintended, audience. In this paper, I take interest in Hardy's depiction of unintended audiences of sneaky listeners, as I call them in my title, I'm really hokey, that um, either intentionally or unintentionally intercept news not intended for their ears. These figures, I argue, stand as Hardy's metafictional manifestations of an argument undergirding his case for candid fiction and his approach to narrative form. That withholding knowledge is a futile and at times dangerous enterprise in a society of what one Daily Times contributor calls newspaperized Britons. As Anne Galen has observed in her monograph on eavesdropping in the novel in the 19th century, eavesdropping or overhearing can serve as a narratological tool for staging the manner in which stories are generated and resolved. But also, I would add, how stories are never truly under storytellers' control. Now, spying and the surveying gaze has earned frequent mention in Hardy scholarship, and it's been interpreted as symptomatic of Hardy's narratological distance, as commentary on um, panop the period's panoptical surveillance, as evidence of Hardy's photographic imagination, or as manifestation of Hardy's highly developed visual sensibility. I focus, though, on eavesdroppers rather than voyeurs, and I read the snooping ears omnipresent in Hardy's fiction as his testament to cultures of publicity and the threat of inevitable exposure. Sound escapes and news leaks, eavesdroppers remind us, especially in the fast, expansive, and leaky information networks of modernity. The next presentation was mine, but unfortunately, I lost part of Jay's introduction to feedback. So we'll just dive right into my presentation. As common reading on a mass scale, 19th century newspapers not only instilled in readers a sense of national identity, they also enabled Victorians to look outward to the wider world. But Victorian newspapers did not just invite readers to look, they also invited them to listen. And sometimes they invited them to do both at once. 
in a song, quote, specially composed for the Weekly Telegraph, end quote, for example. Harry Dacker, whose Daisy Bell is still well known to modern audiences as On a Bicycle Built for Two, critiques a culture so focused on catching the eye that it resorts to polite fictions and even outright falsehoods to do so. Such keen competition exists in our land, he writes in the first verse. Advertisements meet us on every hand. Attractions so tricky, some costly and grand, for catching the eye, you know. The goods advertised are perhaps of the worst, and yet they're puffed up as the first of the first. And he who puffs most is the last one to burst, if he catches the eye, you know. That is the game that's all the go. Trickily catching the eye, you know. As the candle said unto the fly, you know, there's nothing like catching the eye, you know. The Dacker begins with a criticism of the very advertisements with which the song would be printed in the pages of the Weekly Telegraph in 1894 is no coincidence. By the 1890s, as Matthew Rubery notes, quote, the newspaper had evolved from a luxury item read by one-eighteenth of the population to required reading for nearly all of Britain, end quote. And as Pretty Joshi has pointed out, the average newspaper contained a ratio of news to advertisements of nearly 50-50. Given the sheer number of advertisements they encountered in daily newspapers and periodicals, Victorian readers had to learn quickly that not everything they saw and read in the paper could be trusted. In one of the Weekly Telegraph's earlier iterations as the Sheffield Daily Telegraph, this proliferation of advertisements and the dilemma it created for readers spurred an anonymous author, likely, I suspect, the editor himself, to comically skewer their prevalence in an article titled simply Advertisements, printed on 19 October 1861. Before me lies the Sheffield Daily Telegraph, full of news, and not its worst feature is its advertising department. Money, 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 says one. Eight thousand pounds ready to lend, says another. And we are tempted to think we shall be rich in another half hour. But then an awkward thought intrudes itself, and we leave the loan alone. Don't you see? Cheek by jowl with the money comes its best substitute, education, which does not seem today to have much to say for itself. In highlighting the educational properties of advertisements here, the anonymous article writer not only positions the newspaper as a site of epistemological development, but gives advertisements a privileged role in that development. If newspapers and other periodicals were understood to be the, quote, discursive context and physical medium of the most important British literature in the 19th century, as Dallas Little contends, and if they worked, as James Muscle argues, to cohere knowledge, in this case about the body and the society in which it existed, this anonymous article raises the possibility that the newspaper's most educational features aren't necessarily its news articles. For this anonymous writer, the advertisements and other features not only helped readers learn about the world by looking and reading outward, but also enabled them to take a step back and see their own education in action. By the 1890s, this author's tongue-in-cheek optimism was less tenable, however, particularly in the case of the veritable flood of patent medicine advertisements which filled many periodicals. While it is true that there was increasing skepticism about the efficacy and quality of such prolifically advertised goods in the late 19th century, it is also true that these advertisements worked more often than not. In the case of patent medicine advertisements, for example, Thomas Richards notes that Britain was spending two million pounds a year in advertising costs and adds, quote, by any reckoning, the English public bought more notions than it did legitimate drugs and more pills per capita than any other nation in Europe. In light of this context, Dacker's It Catches the Eye You Know seems to capture an increasing social unease about the correspondence of seeing and reading to understanding and knowledge as it lampoons advertisers and other characters who catch the eye in tricky ways. 
In doing so, the song insists that newspaper readers must ultimately listen to truly see the world and understand the processes by which they come to know it. Leonard J. Davis, arguing that there is an economy of the body embedded deeply in our metaphors about language and knowledge, provides us with a way to discuss this unease as it manifests in the contents as well as the forms of 19th century media. Davis observes that in Western culture, we associate the generation of language with the mouth and hand and the reception of language with the ear and eye. In instances when these associations are realigned, he contends, readers are momentarily disabled, that is, aesthetically or semantically blinded or deafened. These blind and deaf moments, in other words, trigger readers' acknowledgement of a disconnect between their own bodily senses and the text's economy of the body. Such as when you're reading and somebody talks about, and the, and the author talks about hearing, and you, and you realize none of these words you're reading are actually being vocalized. I draw on Davis's work to contend that 19th century newspapers were important sites where this metaphorical economy of the body was both constructed and challenged. More specifically, I conceptualize newspapers as sites where the acts of looking and hearing become productively mixed up, using music printed in the Weekly Telegraph as a focus for my argument. speaker is Miranda Butler. Uh, she's a PhD student at UC Riverside, uh, and her dissertation combines her interest in science and science fiction uh, from Darwin to the 21st century genomics. And in particular, she looks at technologies of shorthand, telegraphy, and phonography uh, in the 19th century. Thank you so much. So thank you, Jay, for uh, being our moderator today. Uh, and I would like to thank also my friends on this panel. They're my colleagues, but they're also my friends. So this is a really exciting time for us to collaborate on our shared interests, um, which I think are super cohesive in this. Um, I would also like to extend thanks to Imogen Forms of Fail, who's in the audience. Uh, we had a great conversation based on her presentation yesterday on time, space, and mathematical ekphrasis, which pushed my thinking on this project and which I've started to consider a little bit in the most recent um, version of this conference paper that I'm going to add a little onto today. So I'm going to keep working on that uh, and her suggestions as well. Uh, so, in 1890, Aline Delano translated the 1886 Russian novella, The Blind Musician, by Vladimir Korolenko for an American publisher. The publisher distributed it widely in the U.S., and although Korolenko's work may not be commonly discussed within the context of Victorian studies, The Blind Musician went through numerous printings between 1890 and 1898 and made its way into England. Within three years of the novella's English-language release, a British newspaper in Manchester described Korolenko as, quote, the most distinctly promising of living Russian novelists after Tolstoy, end quote. The Blind Musician was particularly praised for its realistic depiction of childhood blindness. Korolenko was both a journalist and social activist, well known and internationally recognized for his advocacy in support of, quote, those who suffered innocently at the hands of the Russian Tsarist government and police, end quote as well as the rigid class distinctions in Russia at the time. His novella was approved and touted by the esteemed teacher and activist for the visually impaired, Michael Anagnus, director of the Cutting Edge Massachusetts Institute for the Blind from 1876 to 1906, who also served as a mentor to Helen Keller. 
the blind musician follows Petrick, a young boy who is born blind, as he grows into adulthood and struggles to find his place in an able-bodied world. However, when Petrick's uncle teaches him to read in French and Braille, the world suddenly opens up to him, because reading in Braille hones his skills for reading music. Although there is a long-standing cultural stereotype that people who lose their sense of sight gain a superior sense of hearing, or vice versa, um, which is not a welcome stereotype and also generally not true, my paper argues that in this novella, Petrick is uniquely attuned to sound not because he can or cannot hear better, but because his blindness requires him to learn to read through his sense of touch. This paper makes two movements. First, I connect Petrick, the blind musician, uh, with his superior musical abilities to the fact that he recognizes sound as a physical, tangible object, a perception that was made possible by both late 19th century scientific and spiritualist discourse, but far more importantly through a blind reader's use of sound-based tactile writing systems like Braille. Second, I use this reading to push the boundaries of synesthesia as a literary device, arguing that in the 1880s and 1890s, synesthesia evoked far more properties than simply the five human senses getting a little mixed up. My ultimate goal with this project is to offer 19th century synesthesia, particularly as presented in relation to readers with disabilities, as a sonic epistemology, a productive theoretical approach to listening outward in Victorian literature and culture. Although it is important to remember that Korolenko's work was originally written in Russian, and I acknowledge that I am not a scholar of comparative literature, French, British, and, and American audiences were reached by the book, and more importantly, those countries' cultural objects and inventions are included in the novel. When Petrick is a young boy in the story, one of the very few people who is effectively able to communicate with him is his uncle Maxim, oddly because his uncle is a progressive political radical a character trait which is marked by his fluent reading of French in order to study political philosophy. This unusual language skill allows Maxim to, quote, study assiduously the best methods of instructing the blind, and thus Uncle Maxim, quote, taught Petrick to read and gave him a regular course of lessons. Although Braille is not explicitly named at this point, Petrick himself describes his reading method as taught to him by his uncle in these terms, quote, I read from my own books with my fingers. I read French." End quote. In my research in critical disability studies, Braille, which originated in France in the 1830s, was globally disseminated enough by the end of the century to be the most likely form of reading that Petrick is using. Furthermore, although French Braille was largely based on the French alphabet, Louis Braille created his system in a simplified way that had its own shorthands, and often used one braille character to represent both the voiced and unvoiced form of a consonant. So if you look um, on my visual there, it shows one symbol represents both a P and a B, um, and other similar sounds that we would recognize with the international phonetic alphabet as being uh, related. So Korolenko continuously describes Petrick's sense of hearing as his, quote, acutest sense, which, quote, gave him the most satisfaction. However, each of Petrick's five senses are never fully distinguished from any of the others. Quote, the subtlety of his touch was extraordinary. It almost seemed as if he could distinguish with his fingers one color from another. Handling a piece of bright colored cloth gave him more pleasure than handling one that was dark or dull. In other words, Petrick feels in such a powerful multi-sensory way that this is why music calls to him in the first place.
Our final paper is by Shannon Drucker. She evidently has a handout. Uh, she's a PhD student at Boston University, and her dissertation is on sounding bodies, which shows how 19th century scientific understandings of music's effects on the body transformed how Victorians, uh, Victorians, Victorians <laughs> thought about gendered and queer bodies. Uh, she is a classically trained clarinetist who plays in music, uh, chamber music ensembles around Boston. In his book, Victorian Hauntings, the critic Julian Wolfries writes that ghosts are never available corporeally. As he argues, specters inhabit fundamentally intangible spaces and by definition resist material instantiation. What sonically minded readers or thinkers may notice is that Wolfries' theory of spectrality can also be applied to music. Music, after all, inhabits a kind of ghostly space. It's disembodied, invisible, intangible, and ephemeral, qualities that, as we know, many romantic poets and metaphysical philosophers often rhapsodized about when they were talking about music. Yet in the 19th century, as several of my fellow panelists have gestured towards, um, scientists in the emerging field of acoustical theory were beginning to discover that music might actually have some strong ties to the material world. Figures like Hermann von Helmholtz and John Tyndall increasingly understood music as a tangible entity with the capacity to travel through space, produce measurable waves, act on physical objects, and arouse bodily sensations. Music could enter the human ear, tickle the tiny nerves inside, and precipitate actions in other muscles of the body, causing listeners and performers to quiver and convulse, and their hearts to beat, and their skin to sweat. In this paper, I look at two texts in which this physical force of music helps to usher into the material world that other seemingly bodiless figure, the ghost. In John Mead Faulkner's 1895 novella, The Lost Stradivarius, and Vernon Lee's 1889 short story, A Wicked Voice, ghosts produce music that vibrates walls, rattles windows, and arouses intense physiological reactions in human listeners. Both texts rehearse a similar, very curious trope in which a young bourgeois man develops a deep attraction to a male ghost who haunts him by playing music. Faulkner's protagonist, an Oxford student named John, discovers an old Stradivarius violin buried in a cupboard in his dormitory and is soon haunted by the ghost of its former owner, an 18th century Oxford student and a violinist named Adrian Temple. Vernon Lee's narrator, a composer named Magnus, is tantalized by the ghostly vocal music of an 18th century castrato opera singer named Zaffirino. Both Faulkner and Lee were fascinated by new scientific theories of sound and read widely on acoustical theory. Lee even conducted her own research on the physiology of music for her book Music and Its Lovers. In what we now call kind of a qualitative anthropological study, she interviewed hundreds of musicians and listeners about the bodily sensations they experienced while playing or listening. Both Lee and Faulkner then were positioned to imagine music as a channel through which ghosts could enter the physical world and interact with its human inhabitants. Though couched in the language of music physiology, these interactions are almost always highly erotically charged. The protagonists John and Magnus throb, convulse, shake, sweat, and moan in response to the ghostly sounds they hear. 
While they cannot always see or touch the ghosts that haunt them, they can hear them, and thus, in the context of 19th century music physiology, feel them. We might expect these supernatural moments of same-sex erotic attraction to replicate late 19th century stereotypes about the otherworldly dangers of sexual deviance, as both the ghosts and humans are coded as male. Critics often link fantasiacal ghost stories with notions of queer absence or loss, illustrations of the deathly dangers of non-normative desire. Other critics have suggested that ghost stories repress sexually deviant figures by taking them out of the real world and rendering them safely abstract in the realm of the supernatural. By not being physically present in the here and now, they cannot pose as much of a threat. But Faulkner and Lee insistently reassert the materiality of their ghosts through music. The ghosts of Adrian and Zaffirino are emphatically present in the physical world, as are the pleasures they offer their human listeners, pleasures that are rarely available or accessible to them in their everyday Victorian lives. Faulkner's John experiences intense bodily gratification as he makes music with the ghost of Adrian, while his relationship with his wife otherwise leaves, otherwise leaves him cold. For Lee's Magnus, listening to the ghostly music of Zaffirino is his only source of pleasure at all. He otherwise lives kind of a miserable life alone in a rented room in Venice, deprived of social interaction, romantic or otherwise, as he tries in vain to write an opera that never comes to fruition. Importantly, though, these musical encounters don't just represent same-sex desire. After all, Adrian and Zaffirino are ghosts, and thus their musical exchanges with John and Magnus become a little more complicated. They represent encounters not only between male figures, but also between humans and non-humans, beings that do not possess visible or tangible bodies. These encounters also transcend temporal boundaries. The hauntings offer John and Magnus moments of intimate contact with history itself, instances in which they can intermingle with figures and sounds from the 18th century. By making audition, rather than overt tactility, the primary source of intimate exchange, Faulkner and Lee broaden our understandings of what constitutes physical interaction altogether, and what kinds of corporeal contact are possible or even accessible, if not visible. So there you have it, snippets from our NAVSA 2018 panel, Listening Outward, Sonic Epistemologies in 19th Century Print Culture. I was so inspired and thankful to be working with this group of amazing women scholars, and um, I just want to echo what Miranda said, that they're not just my colleagues, they're my friends, and I look forward to following their work in the future, and I hope you do as well. So to close, as promised earlier, I am going to play you the midis that I created for this presentation. The first is Harry Dacker's It Catches the Eye You Know, which was, quote, specially printed for the Weekly Telegraph in 1894.
The second song is L.E. Dunn and A.H. Foster's Just This I Ask, which was also printed in the Weekly Telegraph in 1894. Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Today's transition music was a selection from popular pieces by old Italian composers performed by Peter Bradley Fulgoni. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.